Um, yeah, it's good to be with you all today. Um, we are going to continue to talk about chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith today and hopefully bring that chapter to a conclusion. Uh, my plan starting next Sunday is to begin a new um, series for adult Sunday school. Um, last fall we did practical theology um, with uh, the Human Sexuality Report and really discussed uh, what it means to be um, sexually faithful according to the scriptures and a number of various ways and then we moved um, around November or so into this study of the Westminster Confession of Faith and my intention was never to go chapter one um, all the way to the end. That would take uh, quite a long time and um, I, I want to break it up. And so, um, and, and part of that is because I would like to spend some time each year during Sunday school expositing scripture, teaching the scriptures, talking about them together. So that's what I intend to do begin nec- to begin next Sunday for the months of April and May before we take off from Sunday school for the summer months. So we're going to begin next Sunday by um, looking at the book of 1 John. Uh, The plan is going to be to study 1 John, discuss it, talk about it. Um, I'll teach it, teach through it um, for the months of April and May. Um, So that is what is on the docket. Um, But today I want to spend some time hopefully wrapping up in a good way our discussion of chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is of God's eternal decree. I've printed the entirety of that chapter um, on the handout there that you have, so you have it before you. Um, we've you know, been walking through this chapter in some detail. This chapter has to do with God's eternal decree, which is um, over all things. He ordains whatsoever shall come to pass. Um, but then there's a particular emphasis in this chapter on Uh, what that means for um, salvation and for damnation, and what that means for election. Um, And so today what I wanted to do at the beginning, I've got some um, on the back page of the handout, you'll notice some extended quotations from John Calvin. And Calvin is a resource here, of course, a wonderful resource in his Institutes and Book 3, chapters 21 to 24, um, I would say are really just remarkable um, um, series of exposition on this topic of election. And um, Calvin does it probably better than anyone has ever done it in terms of talking about these things in detail, um, working through the scriptures, the relevant scriptures, um, thinking about practical objections that people have um, to this doctrine, which I would say have not really changed much in the years since he wrote that. Uh, work, um, the Institute's 400 years, 500 years or so. Um, and um, it, so if this is something that you are wanting to study, to think about more deeply, I would very much direct you towards Calvin's Institute's, um, particular those sections. Um, it, it's not that much material, um, but it's wonderful. Um, but it's certainly something you could read. You can easily find it online. There are lots of free editions of the Institute's available on the internet. Um, so I, that's, I'm going to hopefully be able to reference some of those quotations as well. You can see, I think, some of the ways that Calvin is helpful for us um, in, a, in a few minutes' time. Uh, but I wanted to start today um, by looking again at chapters or sections, paragraphs 5 and 7. I think these are the two that really um, cause the most controversy when we're thinking about election and um, um, these topics. Um, and then I w- what I want to do is really look at the scriptures. Um, there are two scripture texts um, that, that form fundamentally the basis of, um, of paragraph 5, which is about God's election of some to salvation. And 
um, paragraph 7 is about God um, ordaining or passing by some um, to dishonor and and those two passages that you can see there referenced by the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith are primarily Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. And if you're going to go to the scriptures, if you're going to really try to think about this topic from the Bible, of course, um, um, you can look in a lot of places. Um, uh, we could so we think about election. We could think about um, the way the whole Old Testament talks about God taking initiative and in salvation, how he... Um, calls Noah, how he calls Abraham, how he calls um, Israel out of Egypt, um, how um, the book of Deuteronomy is all about um, how Moses explaining to Israel that the Lord has chosen them, and it wasn't because of anything that they did, but he has um, reached out and, and, and drawn them to himself. You can think about um, the story of, um, of David, um, of Joshua, of others. All these places you can see the Lord's hand in terms of election, and certainly the Psalms speak of God's sovereignty, of his reigning over all things, of him um, being the one who opens the eyes of the blind and sets the prisoner free, that he's the one that gives salvation. Um, so all the scriptures certainly speak, and, and we could keep on going, talk about the prophets, talk about Isaiah, etc. Um, but certainly in the, in the writings of Paul, um, these doctrines come to really prominent focus in a way that is, I think, pretty clear and pretty, um, uh, well, it's, I think it's helpful. But I think it's very clear um, what Paul speaks about in Ephesians 1 and uh, in Romans 9. So let me read um, paragraphs 5 and 7, and then we're going to look at those scriptures um, for a few minutes. So the standards say, uh, those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious name. Um, essentially what this paragraph is saying is that God, before the foundation of the world was laid, um, chose some um, to be in Christ. And he's called them into faith in Christ. He's done that effectively. He's done that powerfully. He's done that through the working of his spirit in due season. Um, um, that he has, he has called them unto everlasting glory. And, and he's done this um, freely. He's done this um, because of his grace. Um, there is no... Uh, reason behind the reason of his grace, of his love. He, he has loved those whom he has loved because he loves them, um, not for any other reason. It's not because he foresaw that they would have faith or they would have good works if he selected them or they would have perseverance if he um, gave them uh, new life. It was nothing that he foresaw in the creatures um, that caused him to do these things, um, but he did it merely to the praise of his glorious grace out of his free um, his free will, um, his secret counsel and good pleasure, um, as that paragraph says. So let's, let's look at Ephesians 9. I'm sorry, Ephesians 1. There's no Ephesians 9. <clears throat> so, and I'm, I'm sure this is probably a passage that many of us are familiar with, but that's all right. I just want us to hear um, what Paul has to say here. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now Paul gets into the election part. Even as he chose us in him. So he chose, he's speaking to the saints who are at Ephesus, those who belong to the church. Um, he is saying that, that they have been chosen in Christ um, not in some abstract, generic way, but that God has chosen them in Jesus, the one who is himself the chosen one. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Um, so before anything was made, before the foundations were laid, before creation itself, um, those who belong to Christ were chosen um, by God the Father that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is why he's chosen us. He's chosen us that we might be holy and blameless. And of course, that holiness, that blamelessness is not something that we have achieved or he chose us and then we, we lived up to that somehow in terms of um, not being sinful or not being um, with blame. Uh, rather, he chose us to be holy and blameless um, before him through Christ, um, through the work of Christ, through Christ's faithfulness, Christ's obedience, through our union with him, uh, we are ourselves made holy and blameless. Um, why did he do this? Well, Paul says, in love. It's because of love that he predestined us. So another similar term there. Um, he uh, chose us. He predestined us, Paul says. And, and why did he do this? He did this because he loved us. Because his affection was set upon us, um, even before we existed in terms of our existence in time and space, um, the Lord um, loved us. In love, he predestined us. Um, he predestined um, those who belong to Christ for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So again, this emphasis that Paul um, gives here all throughout his writings, but it's so um, at the forefront here in Ephesians 1 that this election, um, this predestination, um, is a predestining in Jesus, right? It's, it's being chosen in Christ, um, that we would be adopted, um, and, and we're adopted so we, we would be sons of God through the Son of God, through Jesus Christ, um, according to the purpose of his will. Um, so this didn't happen haphazardly, this didn't happen uh, randomly, arbitrarily, uh, it, it didn't happen because, again, he knew that there were some people who were good people and other people who were uh, bad people, or some people who were bad people, but some people who were less bad than others. Um, no, it was according to the purpose of his will that he did this, and to the praise of his glorious grace. You see that phrase, the, the divines, in the, the paragraph, quote verbatim, basically, um, lift out of Ephesians 1. All this was the, to the praise of his glorious grace, that, we might, um, that he might be praised because of his grace, that he might be glorified in um, because of his gracious action, taking the initiative, coming to us, with which he has blessed us. Again, how does he bless us? He blesses us in the beloved, um, referencing back to Jesus' baptism, um, other places, um, the transfiguration, where the Lord says, where the Father says, this is my uh, beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, um, that we are 
uh, blessed in union with the one who is the beloved Son of God. In him, that is, in the beloved, in the Son, in the one through whom we have received adoption, in the one uh, that we were chosen in, um, uh, as verse 4 says. In him, in this Christ, in this Son of God, we have redemption through his blood. So Christ is not only the one to whom we are united, um, who is holy and blameless himself, um, he's also the one whose blood is spilled to atone for our transgressions, for those who belong to him. In him, we have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, and he made, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So again, the, the, you see the emphasis here is on God's initiative, God's choosing, God's ordaining, um, all of these things that took place. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, that is in verse 11, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. I mean, even that metaphor speaks to um, an inheritance is not something that you earn. It's something you receive by virtue of who you're related to and what they've done. And that, that's the, the metaphor here. That's the image. We receive an inheritance because we have been adopted as sons uh, through Christ. Um, and through Christ, we have been made um, the sons of God to receive this inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you see again where the divines are, are making statements like God ordains whatsoever shall come to pass. Well, there it says that God works all things um, according to the counsel of his will. Everything is worked out according to what he desires to take place. Um, so God has predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. And, and notice here that Paul doesn't have any problem speaking of both um, the, the sovereignty of God, and God's electing us, God's choosing us, God's predestining us, but also, he says, you heard the gospel and you believed, you responded to that. Um, now, you know, we can think theologically and philosophically about we only believe because of the regeneration of the Spirit and God's electing us and God's choosing us, um, but Paul has no problem talking um, in ways that, that, that indicate that there is real responsibility, that there is a real response that takes place as well um, for us as the Lord um, does all these things as he sets us free um, from the bondage of sin. Um, you believed in him, and you were sealed, right? So God, God's work in salvation is from beginning to end. He elects um, us before the foundations of the world in Christ. He chooses us. Um, he um, ordains for our redemption to be purchased um, through the work of Jesus, through his blood. Um, he adopts us um, in Christ and make us one with him, and then he seals us uh, with the Spirit so that all of those things are set we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And why are we sealed with the Spirit? Because he is the guarantee, Paul says, of our inheritance, that inheritance language again, until we acquire possession of it to the praise 
of his glory. There's, there's always this already not yet concept in, it, in regards to our salvation. Are we forgiven of our sin? Yes. Are we justified? Yes. Of course, those things now in time and space through the work of Christ. Will we receive the fullness of all those things on the last day? Yes, on the last day, those who are in Christ will be publicly vindicated, um, publicly justified um, as being righteous in Jesus. And so we look forward to that um, day even as we experience it now. So I just, I just want to lay that before you. I, I don't know, you know where we're all at as we wrestle with this doctrine, but as I read Paul here in Ephesians 1, it's, it's just hard to conceive of human salvation um, being something that is not the work of God. Uh, when you, in a, in a complete way, um, when you um, read this text, when you um, hear these words um, from the apostle. Any thoughts or questions or comments about Ephesians 1? Yeah, Donovan. Yes. Right. Yes, an abundance. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. Yeah, that, that, that beauty of God, the lavishness of God's grace, of its abundance. Of course, that's an image that's all throughout the scriptures. Several weeks we used... Um, in our liturgy, um, quotation from Isaiah 12, where um, Isaiah says, you will, dr- you will with joy draw water from the wells of salvation. And I love that picture um, that Isaiah gives, that um, it's, a, it's a future tense, um, it's a picture of an unending uh, concept and reality that, that we, with joy, will draw water um, from the wells of salvation. And the idea is that again and again and again, as much as we need, right? It's just it just comes out of the ground, out of God's uh, person and character. Um, his, and we could look at all sorts of, you know, think about Psalm 23 and how the, our cup overflows as he anoints us with oil. and he, he sets this abundant table for us in the midst of our enemies. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I hope so. Yes. It does. Yeah, so Donovan, in case you didn't hear him, just said there's a great comfort in knowing that God forgives us of even of our sins that we're unaware of, even the sins that we don't consciously confess to him. And that's exactly right, uh, because who among us can consciously be aware of all of our sin? Um, part of our corruption of our nature is that we're blind um, to our sin apart from God's kindness to us. And um, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, what, a, what a blessing that is. Billy, did you have a hand up? Okay, I missed all. Anybody else? Any other thoughts or questions about Ephesians 1? Yeah, James?
Yes. Oh. Yes, the full narrative, absolutely. And I love the way we can see here the triune God at work in salvation, right? Uh, we see the Father uh, electing. We see the Son um, being the one who brings redemption through our union with him. We see the Spirit um, sealing that work and, and guaranteeing the possession of that inheritance on the last day. Yeah, it's, it's a profound passage. Um, Terry had his hand up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Connect with um, what we read here in Ephesians 1 or what the divines are saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what I would say, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a common passage that's brought up. What I would say there is that... Um, Somehow we have to think about God, God's desire um, uh, because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his free grace, that he, he, does, he's, he is like the prodigal father who longs for all of his children to come home. Um, and so I don't, I don't think there's any dispute over that. I think Paul is affirming something there that is clearly um, seen on the pages of Scripture everywhere. Um, you know, I think about the prophets, and you, you see the Lord longing for Israel to repent of her sins and um, um, to turn away from her idolatry. You know, some of the most poignant um, of the writing in the scriptures is God almost seeming to pine for um, his people who have turned against him. Um, and so I don't, I don't think Paul is saying anything new there in Second Timothy, um, that God desires for all to be saved. And absolutely that's true. And yet, Somehow we have to distinguish between God's desire in that way um, with what we see in history, which is that only some are saved and that he also is the, the responsible agent for their salvation. And so I don't know how to fit it in any better than that to say that, that what I read when Paul says that in Second Timothy does not surprise me. It fits absolutely with the picture of the God that I read about um, from Genesis to Revelation, that he desires the salvation of all men. And yet, um, there, it is also clear to me that God does not save all, um, that he only saves some, um, and that he is the one who initiates and completes and, and brings about and completes um, that salvation. Um, so that, yeah, that's what I would say, Terry. Just, I think that's the passage we have to hold that dynamic of God in tension with the reality, I mean, I, we'll see that in a moment when we look at Romans 9, that, that there is also somehow an aspect of God's character that is revealed, um, Paul argues, in showing wrath, in showing judgment. Um, you know, what if some were ordained to be vessels of wrath, Paul says, and, um, and in order to show God's glory through his judgment. And, and, and in some way, um, that is part of who God is as well, um, that he... He not only desires the salvation of all men, he also desires, I think we can say, to judge um, those who are um, re rebels against him. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that helps, but that's, that's how I would respond to that question. Yeah. Um, let me, maybe one more, and then I want to read Romans 9. Is there somebody else who had a comment? Yeah, Jeremy.
Uh-huh. Sure. It is a humbling thing, yeah. All right, let me let me look at um, Romans nine here, and again, just to emphasize what I just said, Terry. Again, I think what I, my point there is, I don't think that passage in the writings of Paul is some sort of like. I don't know you didn't mean it this way, but some sort of like, um, you know, uh, all the scriptures are talking this way, and then Paul talks this other way about God that we have to kind of, I, I think, I really think that what Paul says there about God desiring the salvation of all is something that is just, we would know that even if Paul hadn't said it out loud, you know, said it explicitly, um, because of the way all the scriptures are written. And so somehow as we talk about these things, we, we have to incorporate that. Um, as Calvinists, we can't just somehow jump over that proof text because it's not just a proof text. It's something that indicates something fundamental to God's character and nature. Yeah. All right, so Romans 9. So in Romans 9, the context is Paul is wrestling with um, the reality that many of his contemporaries in Israel have turned against God um, um, or are continuing in their turning against God um, that, are, that seem to be apostate as far as he can tell. Um, and so he is wrestling with why this is the case. And his, his conclusion it is, be, is because God has willed it, um, which is fascinating, right? It's not his conclusion isn't because uh, these other Israelites who have not um, been baptized and responded with repentance um, toward Jesus, it's not they are so wicked and terrible. It's because God has not willed for them um, to turn with repentance. Um, that he has hardened them, and he does he does that um, by looking at other pictures in the scriptures. He says, "But it is not as though the word of God." This is verse six in chapter nine. It is not as though the word of God has failed, um, meaning the present um, faith or lack of faith in his uh, Jewish brothers and sisters, as he writes this. Uh, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through offspring, as it's quoting the Lord here um, from Genesis, through, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, um, so he's speaking of Jacob and Esau here, Though they were, and this is important, though they were not yet born, Jacob and Esau had not been born, and had done nothing either good or bad. Um, and so, so this happened before they existed, um, so to speak, in time and space, before they were conceived, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Um, the one um, who calls is God. Um, she was told, the older will serve the younger. 
As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so he goes to that great story of the patriarchs and Genesis and God's selection of Jacob in the womb um, before he had been born over Esau, that the older, will ser- older Esau will serve the younger, um, that God distinguished even there, and he was the one who did it. Um, it was not um, uh, you know, Jacob being somehow different in character than Esau. It was God's choice. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And man, this is the question, right? When you come to election and, and reprobation. Is there injustice? Is it, is it just that God would do this? That he would elect some and not all? Um, that he would condemn some and not all? Um, is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. It is not unjust for, or unjust for God to do this. For he says to Moses... This is from Exodus. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Our salvation, our condemnation belongs, um, depends upon God and the one who has mercy. For the scriptures says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I have raised you up, This is what Moses says to Pharaoh, that I might show, in behalf of the Lord, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So God does these things. He has mercy. He hardens. Um, God is the one who does it. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So how can God find fault with people if, if all of it is up to God, if God is the one who hardens, if God is the one who has mercy? And, and Paul responds here, I think, in a way that is, is reminiscent of God's response to um, Job um, at the end of Job. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is alluding back to Jeremiah and the vision that Jeremiah had of God's sovereignty, um, that the Lord is the the potter, the potter's wheel. He makes, um, he raises up nations, he brings others down. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jew, I'm sorry, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Um, I think this is as close as an answer as the scripture gives us about why God does this, why there are some, to answer your question, Terry, earlier, that are not, um, even though God desires the salvation of all, um, why he does not bring about the salvation of all. And, and I think that the answer to that question, as much as the scripture tells us, is that God, I think Paul's asking what you know, seems to be a rhetorical question here, but he, he wants us to say yes, this, he wants us to agree with him that God desires to show his wrath and to make known his power. Because of that, he is endured. How is he endured? With much patience, Paul says, with much patience. And the day of judgment, man, I mean, 
whenever that day comes, there will be no room for those who are condemned to complain that God has not been patient, that he has not been merciful. Um, I mean, we see that, you know, in the earliest pages of the scriptures, right? The story of Cain, the story of Noah, um, the ways that God delays judgment and, and, and waits for it and gives warning of it um, again and again. The way that he um, continues the human race, even um, when it could have all been destroyed there in Genesis 6 and 7. Um, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Um, so, so vessels made by him for his wrath, prepared for destruction. Um, they're ordained for this purpose in some way. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Um, so in some way it seems that Paul is saying there's this contrast between um, God's judgment of those who reject him, um, displays his mercy towards those um, whom he brings to repentance and faith. It, that contrast in some way glorifies him so that both aspects of his character can be fully displayed, both his justice as well as his grace um, at the same time. Um, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even those, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Um, so I just want to put those texts before you. I can't possibly answer all your questions, of course, um, but I just, I think if you're going to wrestle with these texts, um, or I'm sorry, you're going to wrestle with these topics, with these themes, with these concepts biblically, um, these are two fundamental passages you're going to have to wrestle with, um, Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. And I, I think, I think that um, the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith have done a good job, a faithful job, um, of summarizing what God teaches throughout the scriptures, but particularly in those texts about um, the topic of election and uh, reprobation. Let me, let me um, just read briefly to you from um, Calvin. Um, so the very beginning of Calvin's discussion of election in uh, chapter 31 of his third volume. And, and notice that, right? People, Calvin, um, you know, he's the election guy, right? Tulip, um, which Calvin didn't write, but neither here nor, but he doesn't get to election until he's written like 700 pages of other stuff. That's just something to notice. Um, he doesn't start with election. Um, he does a lot of things. He, he eventually gets to it towards the end, really, um, of his work. I mean, he still has a good bit to go, but it's, it's in the latter, latter part um, of his work, which is interesting um, to notice that um, for Calvin. Um, Calvin says, we shall never be clearly, this is how he introduces the topic of election. We shall never be clearly persuaded as we ought to be that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know his eternal election. So in order to understand God's mercy, Calvin argues, we have to understand his election, that he elects us um, in Christ because this illumines God's grace by this contrast that he does not indiscriminately adopt all into the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he denies to others. This actually shows that God is the one who is responsible, and thus God is the one who is merciful. How much the ignorance of this principle detracts from God's glory, the ignorance of election is what he means, detracts from God's glory. How much it takes away from true humility is well known. So he, he arguing that, that failing to understand election, as the scriptures teach it, detracts from God's glory and, 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 and robs us of humility that should be ours in the Christian life. 
Yet Paul denies that that this which needs so much to be known can be known unless God, utterly disregarding works, chooses those whom he has decreed within himself. And here he quotes from Romans 11. At the present time, Paul says, a remnant has been saved, a remnant of Israel is what he means here, according to the election of grace, is the quotation Romans 11, just a little ways after what we looked at a few minutes ago. But if it is by grace, it is no more of works, otherwise grace would be no more be grace. But it is, if it is of works, it is no more of grace, otherwise work would not be work. Romans 11, 5-6. Calvin goes on, he says, if to make it clear that our salvation comes about solely from God's mere generosity. That phrase is wonderful, I think. How does our salvation come about? It's merely God's generosity. There's no other explanation other than the generosity and kindness of God. If this is the case, we must be called back to the course of election. Those who wish to get rid of all of this are obscuring, so he's talking about opponents who are opposing election in his time, as maliciously as they can, what ought to have been gloriously and vociferously proclaimed, and they tear up humility by the very roots. Paul is not ashamed, or Calvin is not ashamed to say, this is an important thing that people need to, to be, Christians need to hear about election. It's not just some obscure philosophical debate. It actually matters in terms of their lives, in terms of their spiritual life. Um, Paul clearly testifies that when the salvation of a remnant of the people is ascribed to the election of grace, then only is it acknowledged that God of his mere good pleasure preserves whom he will, and moreover that he pays no reward since he can owe none. So it is only understanding that God is the one um, who elects us, um, he's saying, um, that we can understand about God's mercy, that God doesn't owe anyone anything. Um, Even the righteous are not owed anything. Um, He can owe no one. They who shut the gates that no one may dare seek a taste of this doctrine wrong men no less than God. So people who oppose the scripture's teaching on election are not only opposing God, but also they're doing a disservice um, to their flock, so to speak. For neither will anything else suffice to make us humble. Nothing but election, he says, will make us humble as we ought to be, nor shall we otherwise sincerely feel how much we are obliged to God. So it is when we understand that God has chosen us out of his free grace, that he has done the work, um, or not now, um, it is only in, in, in the, that concept that we will have true humility and also um, uh, be thankful to God, know how much we are obliged to God. And as Christ teaches, here is our only ground, Calvin says, for firmness and confidence in order to free us of all fear and render us victorious amid so many dangers, snares, and mortal struggles. And Calvin knew about those things. He experienced them himself. He, he was a pastor. He saw them. Um, in the the midst of everything in our life that opposes our salvation, um, how can we be confident? Um, Christ promises, Calvin says, that whatever the Father has entrusted into his keeping will be safe, right? Whoever has been given into the hands um, of the Son will be kept there, will will not be snatched away, um, which obviously speaks of God's electing power. From this we infer that all those who do not know that they are God's own will be miserable through constant fear. And man, I just want to say, like, I, I've seen this, you know, um, in people. Um, this, this question that haunts people, um, am I saved? Does the Lord love me? And, and, you know, 
I, I really do think, friends, that, that um, this doc- doctrine matters. It has application in this way. Um, and I know I'm not saying that believing election resolves all those questions fundamentally for people, but I think it does give us a, a different kind of foundation to talk about them, um, about whether we belong to God. Hence, those who by being blind to the three benefits we've noted, that is God's free mercy, God's glory, our sincere humility, would wish the foundation of our salvation to be removed from our midst, very badly serve the interests of themselves and all other believers. So Calvin is arguing here, when people oppose the scripture's teaching on election, they are doing not only a disservice to the scriptures, but they're harming people pastorally, is what he's saying. And I think that's right. Um, I think that's true. Um, I think election is pastorally helpful um, for the people of God. Um, It's a fundamental doctrine that that gives us confidence um, about the Lord's uh, protection of us, about God's merciful character, about, and it it leads us um, to humility in a proper way. Um, Calvin goes on to say, this is his summary of the doctrine of election in in, uh, in, uh, paragraph or section seven of that same chapter. He says, as scripture then clearly shows, we say that God once established by his eternal and unchangeable plan, those whom he long before determined once for all to receive into salvation, and those whom on the other hand he would devote to destruction. We assert that with respect to the elect, this plan was founded upon his freely given mercy without regard to human worth, but by his just and irreprehensible, sorry, irreprehensible, so blameless, but incomprehensible judgment, he has barred the door of life to those whom he has given over to damnation. So that's um, Calvin's summary of the doctrine of election, which you can see the parallels there and the ways that it's articulated by the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, A lot of the same language and ideas there show up. Um, Now Calvin is wrestling with this um, uh, question that we are wrestling with ourselves about um, what what does it mean for God to be just? Um, So in this chapter 23, he's responding to some of the objections against the doctrine of election that were made in his time and continue to be made in our time. Um, Calvin says, Some therefore falsely and wickedly accuse God of biased justice because in his predestination he does not maintain the same attitude toward all right? Um, God, and this is true. If you're going to believe the doctrine of election, you have to believe that God treats some people differently than others, that he, he saves some and he does not save all. Um, and can God be just if he does that? If they say, these are acts of election, um, he finds all guilty, let him punish all equally. So if everyone's guilty, they all ought to get the same sentence. They all ought to be judged eternally. If innocent, let him without rigor I'm sorry, let him withhold the rigor of his judgment from all. So if people are, don't deserve to be condemned eternally, then everyone um, should um, not receive that judgment. But they so act toward him, toward God, as if either mercy were be to forbidden to him, or as if when he wills to show mercy, he is compelled to renounce his judgment completely. And I think that's the crux of the argument. Can God... If all are guilty, as the scriptures say again and again, right? All have fallen short. All have wandered away from God, right? All have sinned. If all are under the same sentence of condemnation, does God have the liberty to choose some and not all? I mean, that's the question, right? Fundamentally. Like, can he do that? Can he choose some to be spared that just judgment and not all? 
What is it then that they require? If all are guilty, that all together suffer the same punishment. So he's saying, ironically, people that oppose this doctrine are arguing that everyone should go to hell, right? Th that would be fair, according to their um, understanding of God's fairness, um, he's saying. We admit the common guilt. We admit with them that all deserve eternal punishment. But we say that God's mercy succors some, helps some, saves some. Let it succor all, they say. But we reply that it is right for him to show himself a fair judge also in punishing. Because God meets out merited penalty to those whom he condemns but distributes unmerited grace to those whom he calls, he is freed of all accusation. We cannot accuse God of being unjust and that he saves some but not all. Like a lender who has the power of remitting payment of one but of exacting it from another. And, you know, you just come back to that story, right, of Jesus' parable of the vineyard and the workers in the vineyard. The Lord hiring, or the, the master of the vineyard hires them, says he'll pay them a denarius, and, and the guys start working at dawn, and um, they work all day, and, and he hires some at lunchtime, and then in the afternoon, and then like an hour before closing time, he hires some others. And then he, they line up to be paid, and um, the, the, the people who were hired last were paid first. And so, you know, the folks that started working in the morning uh, see what they were paid and they get to the end and they say, what's the deal? You know, um, they get a denarius too. What, we should get more than a denarius. And the Lord says, "Who? basically, I'm the master of the vineyard, right? I can pay people what I want to pay them. And uh, who are you to question my generosity? Um, I have been faithful and just towards you. And I think that's something we have to really wrestle with, um, this picture of God. Um, God is the one who has the authority um, to determine these judgments. Th this is the last thing that Calvin says about election um, in the Institutes. He says at the very last paragraph there on your page, let this be our conclusion. To tremble with Paul, it's so deep a mystery. And, and Calvin is doing this constantly. He's warning about the dangers of being overly simplistic with election. He's He's saying it's a complex mystery. Um, it's something that is incomprehensible, beyond our comprehension in some fundamental way. Let this be our conclusion. And this is the conclusion that Paul comes to. To tremble with Paul at so deep a mystery. But if froward tongues clamor, so people who are opposed, not to be ashamed of this exclamation of his, to be willing to say to those who complain about God's judgment, and God's justice, to say the same thing that Paul does. Who are you, O man, to argue with God? That's what Paul says. For as Augustine truly contends, they who measure divine justice by the standard of human justice are acting perversely. Um, we cannot hold God to account by our own standards. And I'll just read to conclude. This is how Paul concludes 9 through 11, that great section where he wrestles with election and um, God's condemnation. He concludes with these words. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And then he quotes from Job. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Or who has given... And 
To him be glory forever. Amen. And I think that's a, a fitting summing up and conclusion um, to this, uh, this whole topic and theme that ultimately we have to acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty and we have to acknowledge that he is the one who determines what is just, um, not us. All right. Um, does anybody have a, a final concluding thought? We've got time for one. Is there a... Yes, ma'am. Sylvia. Thy will be done. That's a great concluding thought. I'm, I'm in agreement. Yes, ma'am. And that's ultimately, I think that's where this leads us. This leads us to a, a kind of receptivity um, toward the Lord, toward his providence, um, toward his actions in our life, that if he can be trusted with these things, he can be trusted with all things. Um, and I, ho- I hope that that's the case for us. And if this is something that you wrestle with, is something you want to talk about, um, don't hesitate to reach out. I would love to talk about these things in more detail in terms of how all this works together. I'm not in any way implying that it's easy or simple or you just need to get on board, um, but I am arguing that I think the scriptures do speak to this, and I think there are good reasons why um, what we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith about election is good. Not only that it's a good, faithful summary of what the scripture teaches, but it's actually good for us um, as Christians to believe these things, that it, that it offers assurance, it offers hope, it offers humility, um, it offers gratitude um, to the Lord. All right, let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for this great doctrine of election. Uh, Father, I do pray that you might um, give us grace as we consider these things, as we wrestle with them in our own lives, as we seek to understand the scriptures. Uh, Father, be gracious to us. And we do say, uh, Lord, as Sylvia just mentioned, um, thy will be done. We trust ourselves to your sovereign care. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.